Welcome to the State of Developer Education, a podcast by Major League Hacking. We explore how technical leaders are creatively tackling the developer education gap to help prepare the next generation of technologists for the real world and build businesses that can adapt to any changes in the technology ecosystem. I'm your host, John Gottfried. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the State of Developer Education. I'm John, your friendly host, and I'm so excited to be here for this episode with Tim Berglund, the VP of Developer Relations at Startree. How's it going, Tim? Hey, John, doing great. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, I'm really excited to hear more about your work. So I always like to start every episode going back in time with my guests. I love to hear about people's own starts in computer science and tech. How did you get started? Okay. This story begins just over 41 years ago, but it was the fall of my fifth grade year and the Scholastic Book Club. I don't know what they look like now, but they're little newsprint things. You'd circle the books you want. There's this book on basic programming. I'm like, oh, programming. Yes, I need that. So I got that book and it came and you know, the day the books come, you're all hype and everything. And I got it and I just read it and Ada Lovelace, I didn't have a computer to write programs on, but I'm just like, this is definitely what I want to do with my life. I mean, it was just like, what are the other things that you would do that you would rather do than this? That was my reaction. And my parents got me a Commodore VIC-20, little brother to the much more successful Commodore 64 Christmas that year and began to apply my basic programming knowledge. I was just thinking about basic the other day and like the stuff I wrote when I was 10, 11, 12. What a completely horrible language. Like what a terrible way to distort the mind of a young person. We did the best that we could. We were a house in the early and mid 80s that had computers that upgraded to a non-PC compatible DOS machine. Those were a thing back then. Learned 8086 assembly language, good stuff there. Eventually got an Amiga 500 and a C compiler and KNR white book, which is not a tutorial. That's a rough way to learn a language, but that was kind of my early journey and went from there. Did you know any other kids who were into coding? Yes, I did. A few, so surprisingly, hung out with people of similar inclinations and interests. And it's like, not all my friends were, but I had one buddy who I still talk to. A group of us have a weekly call on Friday nights and I most Fridays talk to him and he's a engineering manager in the Bay Area. He was a developer his whole life. And he also, I think he had a Commodore 64. He actually got into some 6502 assembly language, which I looked at, but I'm like, yeah, accumulator-based machine just doesn't add up. I can't do that. I just never did it. I was a little late for doing assembly on a PC, but I very distinctly remember programming assembly games on a calculator, a TI calculator, Yes, which was a great distraction during math class. Yes. I think those are typically Z80 machines. That would be, for whatever it's worth, another accumulator-based architecture, which by the way, I think 10-year-old Tim was much too hard on that processor architecture. I think it's a fine choice, but it just, <laughs> just didn't like it. 12-year-old Tim. What kinds of things were you building? Those first kind of touch points. Yeah, those very early days. Wrote a game, obviously. It was very stupid. And I don't think in terms of theory, I have an adult son who's an indie game developer. I don't think he would have maybe rated it too high in terms of gameplay. And I read this book on, call it cryptography, make it sound cool. Codes, you know, Caesar Cipher, Rail Fence, the stuff you could do on a piece of paper and just sounded cool. So I remember writing a program that encode and decode, encipher and decipher strings, freaking basic string processing, left, right, mid, len, why? And it all was, again, just like, what would be the other thing that you would do rather than this? This just seems right. 
I remember a lot of go-to statements. Yeah. I tried a little driving game in assembly language. I, there was this chunk of code. There was no sprite hardware on the Victor 9000. It was all just jamming stuff into video memory. But I found a chunk of code that would kind of do sprite-like stuff and didn't really have the driving physics down. And that one didn't, didn't get there. I talked to a lot of people who, who learned in the way you're describing, where they got a book, maybe they had a computer, they tried to make it do what they wanted to keep it interesting. You've been in the industry for, as you said, 40 years. Well, I wasn't getting paid at the beginning, but yeah, I'll take 40. You you were getting paid in a computer for your parents, right? Like maybe. Right. right. What do you think's changed in terms of how developers are educated? You mentioned your own son went into game development. Mm -hmm. What things have improved? Pays the bills as a web developer and is also indie game developer. I mean, obviously everything. So I'm old enough to have experienced the internet as a change in the way information is consumed. So it used to be books. You bought books and maybe in-person communities. They were called user groups, not meetups back then, but you might go and meet with other people who have this passion. You know, and there's some great stories there, right? Like in the Bay Area, the Homebrew Computer Club from the 70s. I mean, actual world-changing innovation was launched there, but it was more of a like an in-person thing and you read books and you know, there were networks, there were BBSs and things like that, but it wasn't mature like now. This is an alien race compared to then cuz you have a YouTube full of tutorials of varying quality, but generally, honestly, pretty good quality in our space. It's interesting, depending on the community that you're in and trying to learn about, YouTube tutorial quality varies. Just a brief tangent. So a few hobbies of mine, still photography and video and occasionally like some visual effects and things like that. So that kind of stuff. How do you do this in After Effects or Premiere Pro? I, I need a tutorial. It's amazing, right? It's lit perfectly. It's a beautiful background and crisp, three and a half minutes long, pop, 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 done. It's great, right? Coding tutorials kind of in between. Maybe the video is not so fancy. Maybe it's just a little talking head in the corner, but get the job done. I've gotten into 3D printing recently and trying to learn CAD software. You know, different state of the art there in those tutorials. They'll be 30 minutes long. They'll contain seven different topics. You have no idea what's where, you know. So coding tutorials in video form tend to be good. There are Stack Overflow posts. There are somebody's written a blog post. Oddly, on a personal project, the last few nights, I've just been doing some Next.js work, right? I don't get paid as a developer anymore. I run a DevRel team, but my fingers certainly remember how to do these things. And I need to look up, oh, how do you do this with React and eh, freaking CSS and all that? You just Google and you find the thing. It's day and night. And I know this is just a part of everyone's experience, but there was a time it wasn't like that. Now, there are kind of what's happening now. I think we'll get to some of that discussion later in the last few years with pivoting events to online and things like that. There are more recent changes, but over the scope of my life, it's so easy to learn things and find things out and stumble into a technology you kind of barely know and then be competent with it in an evening. Yeah. Certainly become a lot more globally accessible as well. Like a user group maybe used to be the only access point. And if you didn't have that, you maybe had nothing. You had to live in metropolitan area where there were people who had time, enough money to have spare time to go screw around and do those things. And that doesn't describe everybody on the planet. That describes plenty of middle-class and upper-middle-class Americans. Mm -hmm. So very much democratized. And so you see the ability to learn how to code getting pushed into parts of the planet where there isn't enough money lying around on the ground to go to a user group necessarily. Mm -hmm. Was there anything different about what we think of as a meetup compared to a user group, aside from the level of maturity of the technology? No, the word changed. 
And there are a few that have been around for a long time that mean there's one in Denver called the Denver Open Source User Group because it formed 20 years ago. And like in New York City, you have the New York City Java SIG yep. special interest group. Like nobody says that. Well, they did in 1995. So, but no, there's no difference. It's still the same nutritionally questionable food and drink and same demographic and all that. Do you think that learning all of these skills, there's a lot more content out there. It's generally better, more mature. The tooling is more mature. It's easier mm -hmm. to access. Has anything degraded? Like, was anything better in those early days in terms of how you learn technology? I don't think so. Honestly, I think there's been a lot of improvement. Now, you pointed out in the question that the world seems more complex now. There's a lot more options. Like, I've just been doing web development the last few evenings, and that's a disaster. There's all kinds of things that are terrible about that. I think anybody who's ever done web development knows. And options and the jokes that we still make about the JavaScript world, how there's a new pick whatever it is, build tool framework library every six months. And so that's there are little pockets of weird. The only thing that feels like it was easier back then is just the generally lower level of abstraction that we were working at. And to me, at least that's a win. You could know what a processor is doing. And in my own learning journey, perhaps somewhat oddly, assembly language was my second language, but it was rewarding to me to know, oh, this is what this machine is doing at a low level, a step at a time. And there's no magic here. Like I can reason about everything it does. And that to me, that just unlocks my ability to think about problems when there isn't any magic in the system. Right. And so it's kind of easier to jump into things when the abstraction level is lower. Forget about simple language, just take C. There's not much to it. Right. You take input, you do things. You know, maybe there's some library for interacting with the screen, whatever, but it's all very low level and you don't have to learn too much before you get into things. Now, I don't want to go back ever. That was, I think, a simpler world and the first step was easier. And now kind of there's all this junk and you got to know it all. But Grady Booch once said that the history of software engineering is one of increasing levels of abstraction over time. And that's absolutely true. We see that happening. I've seen it happen over the course of my lifetime. And what that means is with the same cognitive equipment that a new developer has now that I had in the early 90s when I was a new professional developer, same human beings, same brains, we can do more because we have bigger pieces to work with. And so there isn't a lot of, I mean, it's fun to talk about the old days, but it's, I don't wish that it was like that. Out of curiosity, like, have you seen any successful methods for getting newer developers interested in those low-level concepts. And the context I'm thinking about this from is like, I've talked to a bunch of Linux kernel maintainers recently. Mm -hmm. There's not a lot of new people going into that. Someone's going to have to maintain it. Okay. That particular thing, there are layers to that, yeah. right? Communities there, Certainly have, there's cultural and technological layers to it. Very gently put. So communities have cultures to them and sensibilities and ways that People interact that are considered good and bad. And yeah, I don't know, it might be hard to recruit new people into Linux maintenance for reasons, which is a question for that community to evaluate. And I'm not a part of it. And I, I don't want to sit here and point fingers, but low level stuff, absolutely. And that's the whole Raspberry Pi, Arduino, hardware hacking world. That is amazing. So electronics was also a hobby when I was, you know, before I had a computer, I would get magazines and try and make circuits and. Usually it didn't work, but every once in a while, like one time I got 16 LEDs to blink in sequence was this project and it was felt like a wizard 
that was a much harder hobby back then. You were in the back of Radio Shack buying components and building circuit boards and breadboarding and all that stuff was tough. There are so many options now. So yes, lots of ways to get people interested in low-level stuff, hardware. Usually most of those platforms, you're still not programming in assembly language, but it's an option on some of them. But in any case, you are writing code that interacts in concrete ways with the physical world. And I think there's just some subset of us to whom that particular thing is very compelling. And man, those tools are available. They're relatively cheap. And I am, I love it. I have, there's a workbench behind me here and some stuff. And I regret that I do not have more time to spend hardware hacking because that's a part of my origins. And early in my career as a firmware developer, like there was always hardware all over the place. And I, again, there's nostalgia there and also fun, but I think it's, there's so many ways to get new developers, early career developers interested in that stuff and get their hands on it. It's a wonderful time to be alive. Yeah. I think one of the most magical things about hardware, especially for people who are new, is you can like touch and feel and interact with it in a way that you can't with software. Like when Mm -hmm. you make that LED blink, Mm -hmm. there's like a visceral reaction to that, right? And I think it's really, really compelling for a lot of people because when you're writing a web app, like maybe you optimize that loop to be slightly faster or more efficient, but you can't like see that or show it off in the same way. Yeah, no, you can't. And this is not a philosophy podcast, so we won't rabbit trail too hard. But fundamentally, what we do as software developers is immaterial, right? There aren't different listeners will have different accounts of this, but it's not really about atoms. It's about information. And it's not clear that information, it's always stored somewhere. There's a little particle of something that's magnetized or not, or a NAND gate that's doing this, that, or the other thing in an SSD. Like there's always physical representation, but it's the same information in all those different physical representations. So it's, we kind of traffic in something that seems to be fundamentally immaterial, which is super cool and all kinds of great things about that. All you need is a computer. You don't need $10,000, $20,000 in test equipment and stuff and environmental impact. I mean, it's, I eat food and I type things that's, and wealth is created. It's glorious. But then also we have bodies, we live in this material world. And so that kind of software that interacts with that material world just pokes you in a place. It's kind of why I've gotten into 3D printing, which is not, again, on topic either, but it's a new and fun hobby. You know, you have this experience of downloading an STL file from a site, loading it into your printer, and then it's a physical object. Well, that's metaphysically interesting, worth pondering on some other occasion. Yeah. I'm a big science fiction fan. And so the idea that eventually you'll cross over from software back to the real world and back and forth again has always been a really interesting idea. And 3D printing is it's still the early days of that, but as I say, we're in the nine pin dot matrix era. We're just spending a good long time in the nine pin dot matrix era in terms of the low cost FDM printers. So that the kind that most hobbyists would get. So going back to your own history, right? We talked about how you started in low level programming, right? Assembly, hardware, firmware development, things like that. Debugging like, software with a soldering iron and oscilloscope. It's like, that's the real stuff. You know, you kids these days. It's something. It's great. And it's an ongoing, I mean, people still do it, right? So, yeah. Yeah. Probably less out of necessity these days. But it was funny, like when I looked at your career progression, it almost like mirrored a lot of this abstraction you were talking about of going yeah. from like hardware to software to developer tools, which is like all uh, of these increasing layers. Of, yeah, that's of, a good insight. I'd never seen that in my own story, but yeah. Yeah. I was curious, like, how did those opportunities present themselves? Was it just like Mm. going along with the time? Were you drawn to certain things? No, it's, you know, often our sense of our own story seems 
random and unguided, whether at the end of the day, that satisfactory account of how you think the world works is up to the individual. But yeah, it's same as anybody else's story. There was never a plan. There was always, oh, that looks cool. Let me go. There was a three by five index card on a job board at Florida Institute of Technology in January of 1992. And they were hiring students to be programmers on what they called embedded PCs. It was a little bit of a stretch. But yeah, that's why I got a job writing C code on DOS and trying to do real-time things on DOS. And that was fun. And I did that. And then I relocated and did some more of that kind of stuff and started a company with some friends and did more of that kind of stuff and like more hardware design. I never did much hardware design personally, but a little bit. And then we got a client who wanted this Visual Basic thing. And I'd done some of that and with a database. And I'm like, well, databases, that's for people who aren't good at the real stuff, which again, it's younger. Yeah. But, you know, we took the work and I did this thing and that turned into something bigger and they wanted to move it to the web. And this is like 1999 now. And we hadn't done any of that. We, the whole dot com boom is going by and we're here with the oscilloscopes and soldering irons having a great time. And so I kind of just wandered into that. And okay, well, I guess I'm a web developer now. And actually that ended up, you know, leaving the business of mine and just going to work for that company for seven years. And this was early Java web development. So there wasn't anything. It was just kind of a, oh, that. And if you want me to keep going with where things went from there. I mean, I want to eventually get to the training and DevRel part of it, because I think that we work with a lot of students. And when you are in university, especially right now, you do see a fairly linear path ahead of you in a lot of cases. Mm -hmm. right? Like you get that computer science degree, you get a software engineering job. And then what happens next is maybe an unknown. But that first step is, I think, at least pretty well defined in a lot of people's minds. And yes, but I think what people don't understand is like, after that, there are a million different branches that you might be exposed to that you've never even heard of before. And it's very typical for an undergraduate or a person in that same stage of life in a non-traditional maybe boot camp pathway to say, I want to do this. I'm aware of this thing that's out there in the profession, and that's what I want to do. And that's great to have a thing to aim at, but you just don't know what your options are. And so there's a whole book on this. The subtitle is Why Generalists Thrive in a Specialized World. Anyway, it's a book about literally the kind of early to mid-20s to late 20s season of life, just sampling different things. And seeing what you're good at. And so, yeah, that happens. And you're generally not aware of those pathways. So what eventually brought you to training? And <laughs> I want to like specifically define training here because I don't, it's not being a professor, right? Like we're talking yeah. about corporate training for the most Absolutely. Part, right? Absolutely. And well, John, it was the money. That's fair. That was a big part of it. So I guess it'd be around 2007, 2008, I went back out on my own and just kind of wanted more variety, more control over what I was doing. I was interested in developing as a speaker. Like I thought, that sounds fun. This conference speaking thing sounds cool. How can I do that? And just all of this said, I, I just want more control over what I do. And early on, that was really just coding for hire as an independent contractor. And I discovered a couple of things. Number one, I heard from other people in this line of work, the value of training, that is what you can bill for a day of training, what you could bill for it back then. I thought, wow. That's a lot more than I can make in a day. And it makes sense. If you think about it, if you're making 15 developers better at what they do, you're actually creating more value in the world than the code you can write for a day, probably, if you're just a pretty good developer like I am. And so it was money. And it was also a little, it was passion. Like I'm good at teaching. 
I'd had some experience my life at church as like an adult Sunday school teacher. So being in front of a group of people and making, in that case, that's like a 50 minute lesson that has a point and is effective and everything. Like I got results that way. And I thought, Hey, I could do this professionally. And boy, it was great. I, I loved it so much. It's fun. And I am good at it. I get results and the money is a lot better. So why wouldn't you do that? You mentioned that you were, I forget the word you use, but like kind of just like an okay developer, but it sounds like an excellent trainer. Yeah, no, I was, I was, I was real good, but not world changing, you know, (laughs) what distinguishes a good trainer from a good developer? Okay. Well, I think they're completely different skill sets, right? To be an outstanding developer, there is nothing about that that is correlated to what your success as a teacher is going to be. There's nothing about it. It's literally uncorrelated. So it doesn't mean that you're bad. It doesn't mean that you're good. It's just, they're just orthogonal. They're different skill sets. Now, the knowledge that you have is good because then you have knowledge to impart. You got to have that. So maybe that's some correlation, but to be a good teacher, and we're talking about here, like you said, corporate training, kind of old school, pre-pandemic, fly in three days, you know, three hours in the morning, three hours in the afternoon, and half of that's you guys working on labs and a great learning environment. This is a thing that is changing now, but it's not going to go away. That's still the premium package. And to be good at that, I think you need a few things. Of course, subject matter knowledge, that helps. Mm -hmm. You need to be, I discovered you really, in a sense, need to be in love with that material. Now, there are probably professional trainers who would maybe think that sounds a little cute, who, you know, like work for a firm, like I develop intelligence or something, one of these shops that just here's your curriculum, go teach it. You know, they're like, well, I don't really love it. I just get through it, whatever. I found that I really had to be in love with the material and in a sense, in love with the people in the room. I know a strange way of putting it, but there's just a lot going on relationally in a room with five, 10, 15 people. You know, there's some vulnerability on their part. They don't know stuff. There's power that you have. You're the one standing, they're sitting, you're telling them, you're they're listening and you kind of have to steward that relationship for their benefit. And most of the time, it's great. Anybody who's done it a lot knows occasionally there's somebody who's not in a good place and skills are required to keep the room together and keep that person together. So I think a lot of empathy for the learner. And as I say, in love of the subject matter and love of the people, I think are the keys. What were some early mistakes or stumbles that you had getting into that world? That was really a business mistake rather than a training execution mistake. But I was really good at selling a class that didn't exist. And then building it. And, you know, so I wake up at 3 a.m. the day before and make sure all the labs work and create a lab that didn't exist. <laughs> it's lean uh, startup training. Exactly. And, then, you know, to a degree, there's lots of the world that gets by that way. But, yeah. and I focus well under pressure. And I, I'll even, took me years later to realize this, I'll create schedule pressure just to get my brain to focus. So there was, that was partially a recipe for success, but I didn't often at first, sell the same course twice. Mm. So there's this huge investment, really big personal toll, deliver the class, you know, build it all at the last minute, lots of stress. And it would really be like two or three days to kind of recover, sort of heal from that and where I wasn't good for much. And so that that was a business mistake, which I eventually corrected. Yeah. In a DevRel context, and obviously we're jumping a bit here, how do you avoid that need for novelty? Like it's a trap I see a lot of people fall into, right? Every conference talk needs to be new and fresh. (laughs) I reuse them, but a lot of people want to create something new and interesting every time. Yeah. And that's fine for non-professional speakers. I think that's great. 
and I occasionally will see that, you know, on Twitter, sometimes in the form of, oh, these terrible DevRel people give the same talk over and over again. I would never do that. And these days, you know what? It's worse. It's probably on video too. And we're still going to submit that abstract and walk into that room. And for some reason, the people in the room find that valuable. And that's probably not because they're stupid. So it's, yeah, you can't just write one talk and give it for years, obviously, as a professional, you know, I do a lot of speaking. It's not my job. My title is not developer advocate. I'm building and operating this team, but I still function that way. And I have a team of developer advocates and you can't earn a living in this business and not reuse material, but you also always have to be building something new. So I kind of try to encourage people to think of an annual cycle, like this year, these are kind of be your two main talks and start to build this other one. And if there's like an intro to Pino, that's going to be a timely topic for two or three years. If Pino continues its growth trajectory, at some point you get to a point where like, okay, everybody knows what Pino is. Now tell me what I can do with it. But right now that's valuable to give that talk. It serves people. So yeah, we definitely repeat material. And I think you have to assume on some level too, that you will have a rotating audience. Like just because you go to all of the Python conferences, it doesn't mean the same people are sitting through your talk 10 times. And usually it's, they're at pajamas this year. They're not next year, or you ask for hands and a good chunk of people. It's their first time at that event. So absolutely. It's a rotating audience. And you know what happens? When if I give the same talk at the same event two years in a row, that has happened. And if you were at the event last year and you went to that talk and you're at the event this year, you don't come to my talk because you've already seen it. You go find something else. And that's great. So you made a kind of an offhand comment that a lot of people's talks are recorded these days. Obviously, increases accessibility. There's a lot of benefits Mm -hmm. to that. 100%. From an actual like content and training perspective, You've developed this talk, you give it in person, it's recorded. What's different about that in-person audience versus virtual? Like you mentioned in-person training and how kind of like empathetic you had to be, you had to relate to people, you had to think about them as humans. When you're on video, maybe that's a little bit different. Like what have you seen in terms of strategies to engage people online versus in person? Yes. Okay. Boy, there's so many layers to that question. I love it. I love it. I love it because it's important. You got to look at what the person is doing on YouTube versus what the person is doing in the Oslo spectrum in September at Java Zone. Mm-hmm. Random example of a conference I happen to love. The person at Java Zone took two days off of work and maybe they have to squeeze in a call somewhere or there's some Slack messages or whatever, but probably they're sort of checked out of work on purpose because they're at this event and they're focused mm-hmm. on what they can learn, who they can talk to, friends they're going to see, that is what's going on in that person's life for those two days. So when they're in the room with me, they're in the room because they want the 45-minute experience of learning and having a good time centered around whatever topic it is I'm talking about. So from the standpoint of the learner or the attendee, slightly different categories, but you know, the person who's not me, that's the perspective you need. Very different thing going on there. Watching a video on YouTube, even if it's my video, my JavaZone video, which I have yet to encounter a conference, even the conferences I am organizer of that gets material up so fast. Like sometimes an hour after your talk, it's on Vimeo already. Like what is wrong with you people? Yeah. They got a vendor who's super good at that. So that person who now is in a browser and watching same talk in a browser window, they're probably at work. Maybe it's nighttime. Maybe they get up early and they like whatever, but often suppose they're learning during the day. 
everything else in their normal life is going on. So Slack messages, emails, responsibilities, meetings, code I'm supposed to write, like maybe you could put that off for a little bit, but there's just so much else going on when you haven't carved that time out. And that's why in-person training is always going to be a valuable thing because some the company's paying a bunch of money for somebody to come in and clearing your calendar so you can learn. I was talking about what is required to be a good teacher. You can even be a bad teacher a little bit. People's calendars are cleared and they can focus on something for three days. They're going to learn, right? So it's got to do more with what's going on in the person doing the learning, which is why, if I may, I don't know if you asked this, but I'll just go ahead. Stuff that's designed to be consumed online Mm -hmm. needs to be designed differently. So this is why I am, anyway, like my job is, my current job, VP DevRel at StarTree is to make Apache Pino famous. So like anybody on my team giving a talk, please record it. Put it on your YouTube channel. Maybe you'll access somebody we haven't. We just want to get the story out there and the knowledge out there. But if you were somehow like worried that recording the talk debases the currency somehow, it doesn't really. Because if you're trying to meet people online, you got to do things differently. Yeah. Which is why we saw in the pandemic, everybody's first pass at an online conference, the talks were still 45 minutes or an hour and the thing was all day long. It's like you just switch it to Zoom and it's fine. And then a year later, the talks were 20 minutes long and it was half a day. And so you need to make those pivots to the online format. And generally that means shorter, more snackable, more focused. And that's very different than the performance a speaker is going to give on a stage. That's a performance designed to teach. You know, it's not just jokes, but you're not going to do that stuff in videos online. You're going to have a series of maybe four minute long videos that you can watch one at a time. And if you're lucky, some kind of little exercise environment you can do things in, you know, that's how that moves to a self-paced online environment. Yeah. When you're creating a really good virtual training or talk or workshop, what signals are you looking for to know that it is working well? If you've spoken at a conference, you have kind of an innate interpersonal understanding of why people be paying attention. Unless the lighting makes them invisible, which is the case in some venues, like you are 100% 100% getting information from those human yeah, beings. Yeah, you see if they're looking at you or their phone, right? Like Their phone or the back of their their thing where the schedule is. What's next? This guy sucks. You know, happens to everybody. What does that look like virtually? Usually nothing. So that's why the online stuff for folks who have been in the profession for a long time when the pandemic hit, it took a few months for me and my team to realize what was happening to us. Because of course, at first we're like, oh, wow, okay, the spring season is screwed. We'll be back in the fall, you know? And then like July, August rolls around. We're like, oh, we don't know when we're going to be back. Also, I've realized doing this online for as energizing as doing it in person is. And again, if you're a professional, you do it because it's just life to you. You know, doing it online is death. It sucks life out of you because like right now, what my eyes are looking at is not even video of your face. I'm looking at like a 62 millimeter wide glass disc. Yep. And that's not a person. I don't get anything from that. Yeah. And so the online, the pivot to online and the zero feedback was kind of devastating to professionals. And we all had to work through that. Answer your question, what do you look for? Again, I guess need to be clear, often you don't get anything. And that's a real limitation of the format. We have tried in when I was doing online versions of Kafka Summit and now real-time analytics summit that we've done online twice to create opportunities for interactivity in the platform, in chat. If it's a smaller training, you know, with again, the 15 people just online, hopefully you're talking in Slack or somewhere and you got to go for interactivity. 
And even, hey, 10 years ago, I was doing online versions of the intro to Git class at GitHub. And we looked for, I mean, they're explicitly interactive things like, okay, make a pull request. I made a pull request, go comment on it. And you're seeing who's actually doing that and who's having fun. You know, like, oh, this person keeps dropping cat gifts in there. That's kind of funny. I actually ended up hiring her later because she distinguished herself as, a, as an engaging and fun and knowledgeable person. Yeah. So yeah, you look for stuff in chat is really all you can do. And it doesn't always work well, but you know there are good things about online as well. So we work around those trade-offs. Is there anyone out there that you see particularly successful or innovative approach to this kind of content? Because it's clearly not going away. No. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I like what we did at Confluent. Sure. <laughs> that's yes. Why? Why yes, John, me. No. I like that. And that was that's done that before. And I kind of my approach to the I just give you my approach to the problem. Yeah. Is very high quality, chunked up, snackable video training with the best hands-on exercise experience that you can manage given whatever the technology is. Hey, that might be look, clone this repo, Docker compose up, follow along at home. Sometimes it's and I think Datastax built this after I left. They built an online learning environment that was in browser. And there was actually a Cassandra cluster back there that you actually got to work with. And that at least required a registration. Might have been a paid thing because like you're spending money at that point. But I think they did a very good job of that. Like we built a lot of good video training there. And after I left, the woman who took all that effort over really leveled it up with the online exercise, the in-person exercise component. So that's what we're working on building here at StarTree. Just Pino 101 exercises, that kind of stuff. That's I really think it's effective. I think it gets good results. And that's my answer. One, I'll call it like a trend in DevRel that I saw, and this was actually before the pandemic, was Twitch streaming, live coding. Yes. Have you experimented with that at all? Yes. I had a guy on my team when I was at Confluent, and I've mentioned a few people, haven't mentioned names. If I don't say Victor Gamov's name, he'll be personally hurt. Yep. So Victor Gamov, great guy. You should have him on your show. I believe uh, I actually, I think I may have. I don't know if we've released the episode yet. But. Oh, nice. Okay, yeah. good. I was going to say, this is. there's no way this is going to work without Victor in at some point. Yeah, he also, like me, became a video hobbyist and sort of built out studio gear, lighting, cameras, expertise, just because he wanted to, right? Mm -hmm. It's fun. And so he was able to be a pretty pro-grade streamer from his pandemic-isolated home in the Eastern Seaboard. And so we did, for about a year, had a weekly live streaming show. He also happens to be real good at live coding. Yeah. So that was good, you know, data wise, juries out on because that's a lot of investment too. That's hard yeah, to do. A lot of time. Yeah. Is it better to do that or just make two really good curated videos a month? What's going to get you more awareness? How are you going to help more people that way? I don't think anybody could have done a better job, honestly. And again, he's just doing it all in his house because he liked it. But in terms of like live participants, you, you don't get that many, even if you're freaking Kafka. Those videos stay on YouTube and they're assets that grow over time. But could you have done the same with a 10 minute video? I don't know. So I'm not super sold on live streaming. I have experimented with it with literally one of the best in the business, but we're not like, I'm not currently pushing on that yeah. uh, in my team here at StarTree. So you mentioned earlier that sort of your big picture goal is to make Pino famous. And I think that's a really interesting framing of like what. A developer relations team is trying to accomplish. What does that mean, right? Like, how do you actually work backwards from that into a strategy? Because that's a really like nice thing to say, but like to sure. me, that implies sure. like brand awareness. 
pithy, but what are the things? Okay, (laughs) right. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. A slightly longer form version of that, which is slightly less pithy, but maybe a little more informative. I want to make it easy and fun for developers to use Apache Pinot. And so that implies, and again, now you're just asking me what my DevRel strategy is. Lots of answers to this question. This is mine. A multi-pronged approach where you need to create opportunities for people to meet each other and form mutually supporting relationships around things they're building in real-time analytics and with Pinot. And being a StarTree customer doesn't exclude you, right? You could be a StarTree cloud user. You're still under the covers using Pinot. So like our focus is on the the free tier, as it were. So that looks like meetups, making smart decisions about conferences, making your digital channels work well, like Slack. Over time, we're not doing this right now, but you look into like, okay, what's going on the Stack Overflow, Twitter, who's talking about things out there? What are conversations we can get into? So I just, I put that under the heading of community. You need to give talks, right? We go to conferences to learn about things. And so we need to be present at the places where people who care are going to be. And so Developer advocates who love their audience and love what they do and want to give engaging, informative talks about Pino, like you got to push that out to the world. Some of that's going to be online and meetups still. Some of that's going to be in person. You need good, scalable online content. We're talking about video content. There needs to be a website where that stuff lives. Sample code, tutorials, recipes, all that kind of stuff. All that needs to be there. Video is a big part of my strategy. So there's that function actually reports to me, which is odd, but that's how we do it here. And that's a huge part of are you know the scalable part of our strategy docs usually docs are not considered to be a part of developer education i am hashtag shameless plug currently hiring for head of documentation and developer education so all this curriculum i'm talking about that needs a leader these people to build that documentation we have engineers writing docs that's how you stay alive right but there needs to be a team that professionalizes that that fills in the gaps that writes the stuff engineers don't write that assumes a uniform that creates a uniform level of quality across everything looks over the metrics looks how people how people use it are using it how it's organized if you want world class docs somebody needs to be driving that and that's a way that you care for developers in their journey so i don't know of any other organization that puts docs in devrel but that's a part of my vision my strategy is that's under the same heading cuz it's a part of the same motion from what's a pinot i thought that was wine do you mean yep. pinot grigio to Wait, how does that part work again in the config file? I need to see that. Like that's that's all DevRel. How do you think about the open source community part of that versus the star tree community part of that? Obviously they're interconnected, but they're also disconnected. Yes. That gets very specific. So and it's funny how often I have to have that conversation, even like internally. Being a person whose employer has decided to pay star tree money does not make you not a part of the Pinot community or the group of people like, what are your needs? I don't know. Exactly the same as somebody building on the open source thing. So, you know, how do I take care of you? Well, exactly the same way. The differences get very specific though. If you're a Star Trek customer and you have a question, well, you use Zendesk for that. You're paying money. Don't go into community Slack and ask that question. It might take a long time to get an answer. So there are certain pathways that change, but in terms of anything I'm doing, I don't care. And Sometimes in my work, I am called upon to know whether a given company is a customer or not. And I usually don't. And it's kind of a problem. I should fix this personally, just as a, in my role as a leader in the company, it seems like I should know that, but I make it a point in terms of the operation of the team that it just doesn't matter. We're here to take care of you. And like, you know, why, 
why is the board okay with investing money in DevRel? Well, of course, because we're going to make it cost less to generate leads in the top of the funnel. I don't do lead gen. You know, like I'm never going to capture your name, but I'm going to make there be more people who know about Pino and see the Star Tree branding. And it's, you know, I will make Pino ideally more famous, which means there'll be more people who marketing might turn into customers someday. And for those people who are interested in that, hopefully their companies will make a buying decision faster because you've got all these happy developers who have been cared for who are able to build cool stuff. So like, yeah, there are business, there are metrics that ought to be affected, but I think a healthy and intentional sense don't care. The things sort of my obligation to you is the same, whether you pay StarTree money or not. I mean, it's kind of rising tide lifts all ship kind of philosophy. It is that exactly. Yes. And you can, again, this could be like out of scope to, to get into metrics. You could look at metrics that a board would be interested in and make the case that these are the numbers that, and there's no A-B testing, right? It's not like we're going to try the company without DevRel and then with DevRel and do science. Not how business works, but you know, specifically, we would expect the cost per lead to be lower and sales cycles to be shorter because of DevRel. Yeah. I think that's probably a very savvy way of looking at it. DevRel has, as you know, like many existential struggles over the years to figure out where they fit and what they impact and how they justify their existence. And I kind of like the way you described it. I think it's very, it captures all of the different touch points that you might have with a developer, right? Docs, trainings, you know, actual introduction to what the technology is, like all of these different things that are often hard to quantify. Yeah. Cool. Well, we only have a couple of minutes left here. I always like to end on what I think is kind of a fun, insightful question into people's personalities. But I like to ask people who in the world of tech or DevRel or, you know, even as far as science who would you want to grab and take to lunch for a couple of hours? Is there some aspirational figure or someone that you're really curious about? I'd say Emily Freeman. I know her on Twitter, never met her in person, but great DevRel leader, great person. Lunch with Emily. Love it. I feel like many Twitter friendships have become real life friendships over time and maybe Mastodon friendships too. Who knows? I would certainly expect that to be the case. Cool. Well, um, thank you so much, Tim. I really appreciate your time and everything you were shared with us. Where can people find what you're working on if they want to follow up? Well, I have not really cultivated my Mastodon presence yet. We'll see about that. Certainly on Twitter as TL Berglund and LinkedIn. Honestly, we're seeing a lot more kind of engagement around the stuff we're interested in talking about with developers, even on LinkedIn. It's a weird transition, but Twitter and LinkedIn, that's where I live. And I'd love to talk to any of your audience. Well, thank you so much. And I hope you all enjoyed listening. Please, you know, like, subscribe, share it if you found it valuable. And we will be back soon with more episodes and happy hacking. Thanks, John. The State of Developer Education is brought to you by Major League Hacking. To find out more about Major League Hacking and how we're educating the next generation of developers and helping the world's leading companies reach them, visit sponsor.mlh.io. And make sure to search for developer education in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen, and click like and subscribe so that you don't miss any future episodes. And if you like it, please don't forget to leave a review, and we'll give you a shout out on a future podcast. On behalf of the team here at Major League Hacking, thanks for listening and helping us empower the next generation of technologists. Happy hacking! Happy hacking!